0: Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words... Made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering into the assembly. There it's the church, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape... When they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made in there. The writer's talking about the old covenant uh, typical worship system with the priesthood and the temple and everything he's talked about in the book. Those things have been uh, shaken. They've been removed in order that the things that cannot be shaken the heavenly things may remain therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to god acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our god is a consuming fire now when we come to continue on in our consideration of public worship um We may be tempted to say, well, we've talked about the importance of gathering together to worship God, and we've talked about gathering to that heavenly assembly, and that we are entering into heavenly worship. Isn't it enough that we do those things? Isn't it enough that we come together and that we gather together with the consciousness that we're entering into heavenly worship and that we're worshiping God in Christ? And the answer is no, it's not enough. Um, because Israel at the foot of the mountain, they were gathered together at the foot of the mountain, and they made a golden calf, and they worshiped that golden calf and said, this is Jehovah, this is Yahweh who led us out of Egypt. And it's not enough as we look in the pages of the Old Testament, because we see time and time and time again that Israel is gathering together to worship, but they're trusting in the sacrifices, they're trusting in the temple. They say the temple, the temple, the temple of the Lord, they're trusting in the externals, they're trusting in their worship. There are many times where they are merging false worship with true worship, and even when God first institutes the worship in Israel in the wilderness with the tabernacle, and he and not almost days perhaps after he he establishes the Aaronic priesthood, and he he takes Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu and. He, he appoints them and sets them apart to do tabernacle worship and to, to carry out that worship service for the people that they offer strange fire to God. They worship God the way they want to worship God. They do what they want to do, and God strikes them dead. And I think when the writer of Hebrews says our God is a consuming fire, he has that in mind. Almost every Puritan is going to say that. It's hard to escape that. He consumed them with fire for not worshiping him with reverence and awe. Now, Jesus said in John 4 that the time would come when we would not worship in Jerusalem or on this mountain. He says to the woman of Samaria, who was a half-breed Jew, and she, remember, was wanting to talk religion with Jesus. Let's talk about denominational differences. You Jews worship there. We worship here. What do you say? And Jesus says to her, the time is coming, and now is, when the Father will seek the true worshipers who will worship him neither Here, or on this mountain, in Jerusalem, but he's seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, there is a culmination. If you take John 4, if you take Hebrews um, 12, 28, and 29, if you put it together with everything we see in the Old Testament, we quickly realize that worshiping God in the right way means worshiping him in spirit and in truth with reverence and awe. Now, there's there's ditches here. I would say probably most in broader evangelicalism, I will still use the term evangelicalism, even though scholars say it's dead, in the, in the right use of that word. Um, in broader evangelicalism, the emphasis is largely placed on worshiping in spirit. In the Reformed Church, the emphasis is largely placed on worshiping in truth. If you overemphasize one to the neglect of the other. You are not worshiping God the way he wants to be worshiped. This is why the Puritans would warn against trusting in the external means in worship. You can trust in your Bible reading. You can trust in your observing the sacraments the right way. You can trust in any of the externals. The danger for the Reformed Church, those who want to emphasize worshiping in truth, is that we trust in those things that we see that God has appointed in his church, and then we go through the motions, and it's just external, and it's just mechanistic, and it's ritualistic, and then the churches die. And hundreds of years of Reformed church history has showed us that's the pattern. The problem in the broader evangelical church, where it's emotionalism, and it's driven by an emphasis on the spiritual experiences that, that last not even a generation— because there's no truth to to ground it. There's no anchor for that. Now, God says that he wants us to love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. And that means the mind, the will, the emotions, the totality of who we are is to be actively engaged in worship. And God is holy. And so true worship is worship that's going to acknowledge that God is holy. I read a great quote um, I'm not sure. I believe it was Eugene Peterson, who used to kind of jokingly say, half jokingly say, we should hang signs all around our church buildings and the worship room that says, "Beware the God." Beware the God. That coming in this place is dangerous. That this is not flippant. Um, We at New Covenant don't emphasize how we think you should dress for worship because God doesn't. Um, I will stand on that. I will argue with you over that. Um, You are to dress modestly. Peter says that's not heaping up to show off all your fancy clothes. We tend to think of modesty the other. That's the only thing the Bible says. The only thing. In the New Covenant, there's no dress for ministers. There's no dress for people. Churches that start to emphasize that emphasize the externals, start to fall into a focusing on what people are looking like rather than focusing on the fact that we are coming into the presence of the holy God and the clothing that you're to be wearing is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our hearts are to be prepared to worship Jesus. We are to be clothed in his righteousness. I think there's intimations of that. When Israel came to the mountain in Exodus 19, God told Moses to go tell the people to wash up. That doesn't mean take a shower and put on your best clothes. That was a ceremonial act that shows that you need to be cleansed spiritually to come into the presence of God. And so we would be, it would do us well to n- note that when we come to worship God, we're to, we're to know that He's holy and that we're sinful, that the only way we can come into His presence is to come washed in the blood of the Lamb, and very interesting that the book of Hebrews, that's the whole point of the book of Hebrews, is that you've been sprinkled clean, that your conscience has been sprinkled clean, that you can draw near with boldness, that you are, you are cleansed in Jesus, you are sanctified. He's already perfected forever those who are being sanctified by his one offering on the cross. He makes you acceptable. How can I be an acceptable worshiper? Jesus makes me acceptable. And the truth about Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit by which he offered himself without spots to God, working in our hearts and cleansing us and renewing us and making us prepared worshipers. Now, that being said, it is fundamental that we consider both of those branches, worshiping in spirit, worshiping in truth, what do they mean? And let me take them in reverse order, as the Reformed always do. Worshiping in truth, we want to emphasize what does God love? What does God love? Um, John Piper has a helpful, helpful illustration that I kind of matriculate into my own. if it's my wife's birthday, and, and I come home with a six-pack and my friends, and I'm like, honey, happy birthday. We're here to drink beer with you and watch the game. She's not going to be happy. I'm, I'm going to be sleeping on the couch. And now we have a dog, so it's going to be really uncomfortable to be out on the couch with the dog at night because I have not sought to show love and affection to my wife and how she wants to be pleased. Now, how much more God, who is over all the earth, who wants to be worshipped with reverence and awe, who in the Old Testament makes it abundantly clear how specific he is and how he wants to be worshipped. This is not popular. This is what we call the regulative principle of worship. It's not popular in our day. I've given you that handout by Derek Thomas. I hope that's helpful from that 2010 table talk article, and I want to read a quote that Derek uses in the fourth paragraph down. Quoting Calvin, he says, God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word. God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned, by his word, why would we ever for a second think that God gave us the Bible for individual salvation and not for how we're to worship God or how we're to live our lives outside of public worship? So certainly, if public worship is what, is, what he is gathering us unto in the work of redemption, we saw that last week, the, he redeemed Israel out of, out of Egypt and he brought them to the mountain and they worship publicly, he does that for us, and while there's a lot less externals in the new covenant, praise God, Peter said they were a burden that neither we nor our fathers could bear. There are still specifics. God still tells us how he wants to be worshipped. He does that in two ways. He does it either descriptively or prescriptively. Some make the mistake that if the Bible doesn't prescriptively have a verse that says, thou shalt do this that that is not binding on us. I would argue that that is a a very faulty understanding of Scripture. We learn myriads from the book of Acts, which is largely descriptive, and the irony is, most of my charismatic friends who emphasize the book of Acts and say, wait a minute, this isn't prescriptive. You say do this, and there's no prescriptive verse. Point to the book of Acts for everything, and it's descriptive. And so we acknowledge across the board all of us do this. My dearest friends are... Reformed Baptist, and all my Baptist friends love to go back to the Old Testament worship, the Old Covenant worship in the temple, and say, Well, we use instruments because they used them in the temple. But the book of Hebrews says temple worship's done. Why would we do that? And then we go back and we're like, Well, we baptize the children and the households of believers because that's continuity with the Old Testament with Abraham. And they say, Why would you do that? It's the New Testament, not the Old Testament. And so we're all inconsistent. I don't think we're inconsistent on baptism, but we are all inconsistent. At every point, we're inconsistent, but here's the point. The Bible does give us things from God that are both descriptive and prescriptive to teach us how he wants to be worshipped. So, for instance, if you asked me what ought to be in the worship service, I would first tell you we have three categories. When we talk about the regulative principle, you have forms, elements, and circumstances, Forms, elements, and circumstances. Let me take them in this order. Elements, forms, and circumstances. Elements are those things that always should be there. Reading of the word, preaching of the word, prayer, the sacraments, singing God's praises, confessing sin, the assurance and comfort of the gospel, even perhaps public confession, what some might call testimonies, but certainly making public confessions, vows unto membership, in a particular congregation, giving, all those things are the elements of worship. Those are the the elementary things. Those are the principal things that God wants in worship. And we know that because that's the description that we get all through the book of Acts in in the founding of the New Covenant Church. And we also find them all through the pastoral epistles, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, we have all these very careful prescriptive descriptions. Jesus commands his apostles go into all the world, preaching the gospel, baptizing, making disciples. those are, those are prescriptive um, that's a prescriptive command to ministers now that we have no more apostles to, um, to put in place the elements that he that God has ordained for himself. Paul talks, so much, as you know, even more than the sacraments about the preaching of the word. We've thought about that a lot lately, how important the preaching of the word is. And so it helps us to think through in the New Testament, what are the elements? What are those things we should do in worship? That, that's a good first place to start. And then we move on. What are the forms? How are those things to be carried out? Does every eye need to be closed and every head bowed when we pray? Well, no, actually, that's not a form in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. Nowhere is in the Bible does it say, let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. Every head bowed and every eye closed. <laughs> um, we do that in our home to help our children not be distracted, but that's not a form. Here are forms of prayer. Kneeling. Paul says, I bow my knees to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, over whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Jesus fell prostrate on his face. We do find head bowing as a form, one form when Abraham's servant bowed his head. We do find um, people going prostrate. We never find sitting for prayer. I personally like the idea of kneelers in churches. We can't have that here. I understand that. I don't think just because Anglo-Catholics like that, we sh- that should shy when we're not kneeling to the elements. We're kneeling to God. There's something beautiful about a congregation getting on their knees. Um, there's a story about ministers in Scotland and um, it was said in the um, uh, 17th century that there was a place where all the covenanters would gather to pray. And they, they wore suits that were much more formal than in, in all their activities. And, and that you could see the black from their suits all in a circle in the ground where they constantly came together and kneeled to pray outside. It's really a really beautiful picture. Um, they called... The Apostle John, I believe, camel knees, is that right? From the calluses, James, it was James, thank you. Um, so there are these forms that should be done in worship, and there's, there's sort of a variety for us. There's, there's a variety of ways in which the elements can be worked out. We could have a common chalice, but most of you wouldn't want a common chalice. But if you lived before little cups and prohibition, you would love a common chalice, we're culturally conditioned. Ooh, that's gross. Not if you live pre-1880. Um, you, you could use a common chalice. You could use a common loaf. The loaf could be passed around and everyone could pull off. That, that's one way, the element of the Lord's Supper. One, one form that you can't do is intinction. So a lot of churches do intinction, the reason intention's wrong is because it destroys the symbol. The blood was separated from the body, so Jesus gave us separate elements. He said, take, eat. That's a command. That's a prescription. And then after they had eaten, he said, take and drink. I know it's hip. I know that sounds mean. Like, I hate the hipsters. I hate the ancient meets modern people. I don't. It ruins the biblical symbol. You have a prescription from Jesus because the symbol is that the blood is poured out of the body. It is separated. That's part of the symbol. Just like the symbol of the broken bread is the symbol of his body being broken. That's not arbitrary. It's not okay for us to just say, well, we could do this. Or I like this idea. We could just do this. I could bring the six-pack and my friends over on my wife's birthday. It'll be great. We'll celebrate. It'll be awesome. My intentions could be great. But God gives us these very specific ways he wants to be worshipped. Now, let's get into the thorny question of music. I am actually, and I think I would agree with Derek Thomas in here. Let me read this to us, actually. Um, first I'll say this, there are no instruments anywhere in the pages of the New Testament, which, except in heaven with the harps, and um, I think the trumpets are a warning blast of judgment, I don't think that's an orchestra, which has led a lot of reform people in church history to be um, uh, all a cappella, especially the covenanters I think they air, they're usually only psalms only which the biggest problem I have with that is that um, there's abundant evidence that they sang more than just the Psalms in temple worship. They, they uh, would have sang uh, the Song of Songs. There's actually evidence about that. It's remarkable to me that you have a book called The Song of Songs, but they're like, no, our hymn book's the Psalter. But it's called The Song of Songs. Why wouldn't we think they sang it? Habakkuk, the last verse of Habakkuk, says, written to the chief choirmaster." That seems to me a very strong indication that the chief choirmaster, who oversaw the music in the temple would have had the people singing that in the temple. You have the song of Deborah. You have the song of Moses. You have all these other inspired songs. When we come to the New Testament, you have two places. One is Ephesians chapter 4, one is Colossians chapter 3, I believe, where they functionally both say, teaching one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord, with grace in your heart to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, if in everything that we're to do, we're to do in the name of the Lord Jesus in the fullness of redemptive history, certainly that should mean that there should be hymnody that gives mediatorial glory to Jesus in the fulfillment of all things in the new covenant. This is one of the big reasons why I'm not an exclusive psalmist. We are inclusive psalmist. Why do we sing psalms at new covenant? That's a rare thing in churches. Why do we sing psalms? Is it because it's become hip? It has become hip. I'm thankful for that. We sing psalms at new covenant Because God commands us in Ephesians and Colossians singing psalms. Why would we not sing psalms? We have one inspired hymn book and many other inspired songs in the Old Testament. Why would we not sing them? And God commands us to sing them. But then He commands us to sing in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is what led Isaac Watts. I don't know if you've ever noticed Isaac Watts, obviously one of the greatest hymn writers in church history. The majority of his hymns are psalms that he uh, paraphrases through the lens of redemptive history and the fulfillment in Christ. I think that that is exactly, I think the church has been given this rich depository of truth in the hymns of Isaac Watts because Isaac Watts understood whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So I think you're singing the psalms when you sing a lot of Watts' hymns. Um, with instruments, I think that they are merely circumstantial. That's the third category. Um, the air conditioning is circumstantial. Say amen. It is, an, it is a good circumstance. God does not command it. You do not find it in the Bible, but praise the Lord. We have the AC working in the city center in Richmond Hill, Georgia, because it would be miserable if we did not have the air conditioning. Lights are merely circumstantial. Now, some might argue that candles, having some symbolic meaning, are just circumstantial, but once you pour symbolic meaning into them and say, this candle symbolizes, and we're lighting this candle to symbolize, you have taken it from a circumstance, and you have made it an element. You have given it symbolic meaning, and have said, God has invested this with that meaning, And so the reason you'll see the candles here is they represent this. That would be importing an element into worship God has not um, ordained. Now, if you were really hip, I'm beating up on the hipsters today, and you just wanted to have candles all over for ambiance and lighting, and you didn't want to have these big lights, and you don't give them any symbolic meaning, great. I'm sure you'll have the hippest Congregation out there, and that's fine. But once you invest it with meaning and say this symbolizes this, you have imported something in the worship of God he hasn't said. So lights are circumstantial, um, air conditioning is circumstantial, the kind of building you meet is circumstantial. That's why I even shy away from sort of this architectural. Um, meaning of of church buildings and how we should be doing this because this it's laid out like a cross and the 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 steeple is pointing up to God. Where's that at in the Bible? You can do that, but don't you dare go binding other people's consciences. That you ought to do this because this is the tradition. So we always want to warn. We always want to guard against taking. Um, some circumstantial thing and then binding other people's conscience with it as if everyone should have the instruments we have or everyone should have the historic church building we have or the hipster warehouse building we have. You can do it on both sides. Skinny jeans and robes are the same thing. Go home and think about that. <laughs> the skinny jeans and the robes, are; the, it both can become you need to do this to contextualize better. And God hasn't ordained any of that. So we have freedom. Here's the beautiful thing. We have freedom in circumstances. We have freedom. The instruments are merely circumstantial. They are. We want to hear the people singing. If they overpower the people, that's not a good thing. The goal is to have the congregation singing. This should just help promote better singing because, as you know, I have a very bad voice, and me leading you is not a good thing. I hear it on the audio. It's, it's, it's terrible. Um. So, we want to acknowledge that God has given us these three categories: elements, forms, circumstances. That there is something of a flexibility. Turn to the last page of Derek's article that I gave you, and I want to read. Um, I want to read all the way down of the end of this big. Um, section here as we close our time this morning and then next week I want to come back I want to talk about the directory of public worship which was something that the Scottish um, Puritans Scottish divines wrote very helpful not binding our churches don't adhere to it I don't think they should I think it presses uniformity too much which is what Derek's going to warn against here but loaded with unbelievable thoughts on how we can benefit in worship in preparation for and in the act of. Um, But here, notice Derek's going to give a a big caveat as we walk out of this lesson this morning. He says, it's important to realize that the regulative principle as applied to public worship frees the church from acts of impropriety and idiocy. We are not free, for example, to advertise that performing clowns will mime the Bible lesson at next week's Sunday service. You have to think about that. Does he hate mimes? Is this racist? Is this discriminatory? No, because miming Bible stories is not reading or preaching or teaching the scriptures. It is miming. It is miming something. God has not ordained miming. We love mimes. If you're a mime, please don't go home wounded. We will come to your street show. You never know who's in the crowd, ever. So I will warn. I will come to a miming experience. I used to love mimes when I was a kid. I don't know. It's now they're kind of scary, but okay. So we're not, we are not free to advertise that performing clowns will mime the Bible lesson at next week's Sunday service, yet it does not commit the church to a cookie-cutter liturgical sameness. Notice what Derek did. It guards against impropriety, but it also guards against pressing an, uh, an illegitimate uniformity. There are a lot in the Reformed church that think, well, if we all our churches just did the same thing, we'd have no problems with worship. Yeah, if all if everybody did exactly what I do, that sounds like a good plan. I like that. I like that on every level. You all should do everything I do, you should like everything I like, you should do it exactly the way that I do it because I have the corner. That's essentially what it's going to end up doing if we press and say, we have I mean, how are we gonna import Western Worship into regions of India, the Middle East, to Eskimos. I mean, that's the new covenant. The gospel is going to Eskimos. We're going to strap an organ on our back and take it to the Eskimos. I mean, this is the problem of exactness and cookie cutter sameness in liturgical outworking. Now, I think that there is a skeleton of liturgy. That's whatever you have in your service. Everybody has a liturgy. Every church worshiping this morning, everywhere, every kind of church has a liturgy. So our liturgy wants to have the elements that God prescribes in his word and that are described in his word. But we don't have to have a liturgical order or even a historic liturgy, even Calvin's Strasbourg liturgy, and tell everybody else that's what they should be doing because we think that's the best. And, And notice what what Derek says, he says, within an adherence to the principle, there is enormous room for variation. I want you to hear this. This is one of of the five best theologians in the world. He pastors First Presbyterian Church, which you don't get any richer historic Reformed worship than at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. And this man, where Sinclair Ferguson was, and this man says there is enormous room for variation that needs to sink in. I think I bought into the idea that there's not enormous room for variation, that everything had to look identical in my days in seminary. And so notice what he says. Within an adherence to the principle, there's enormous room for variation in matters that scripture has not specifically addressed. Ideaphora. So what instruments we use? Do we use an organ? Do we use a guitar? He says, thus, the regulative principle as such may not be invoked to determine whether contemporary or traditional songs are employed. You can't say everything pre revivalism, or everything post Keith Green. You can't do that. A lot of churches do that very thing. Um, they give the sense that the old hymns are stale, the new hymns are fresh, the new hymns are weak sauce, the old hymns are rich. You don't. You can't do that. That's not God has not given us that right. We can say I don't like this hymn, and elders in the church can guard against. Weak hymns, or theologically off hymns, or stale hymnody, and whatever they want to do, the elders in the church can do that for the well-being of the people. But as Derek says, we cannot invoke the principle to whether contemporary or traditional songs are employed, whether three verses or three chapters of Scripture are read, whether one long prayer, or several short little prayers are made, or whether a single cup or individual cups with real wine or grape juice are utilized at the Lord's Supper. To so all these issues, the principle, all things should be done decently in order, 1 Corinthians 14.40, that's the context of public worship too. to acknowledge, must be applied. However, if someone suggests dancing or drama is a valid aspect of public worship, the question must be asked, where is the biblical justification for it? To suggest that a preacher moving about in the pulpit or employing dramatic voices is drama in the sense above is to trivialize the debate. The fact that both may be to employ the colloquialism neat is debatable and beside the point. There is no shred of biblical evidence, let alone mandate for either. So it is superfluous to argue from the poetry of the Psalms or the example of David dancing before the Ark, naked to be sure, unless we are willing to abandon all the received rules of biblical interpretation. It is a salutary fact that no office of choreographer or producer-director existed in the temple. The fact that both dance and drama are valid Christian pursuits is also beside the point. And there, let me just say that as we close, two things. One, And this hit me many years ago and was really helpful to me. We do have drama in our worship service. It's what we do every week at the Lord's table. This is the play. There's one play, there's one message. God is displaying. Paul says Christ crucified was clearly portrayed before you. It's clearly portrayed. It's the divine drama of the sacrament. Baptism is the drama God's given us, drama is for the eyes. We want to see, God has said, okay, I'm going to condescend to help you, I'm going to give you visible plays, as it were, in the sacraments. The other thing I'd say is that Derek makes an important point there at the end that you can't say that being engaged in the arts, in drama, in any of those things is illegitimate outside of what we do in public worship. That's Maybe you all won't have to have that Kind of warning, but there are some people that the pendulum swings too far the other way. And then, and I had friends in seminary who were exclusive psalmists and they would not come over to Anna and my house on a Thursday night with other friends to sing hymns. But they would watch every kind of movie under the sun. But they wouldn't sing a hymn because they took what they believed went on here and they applied it out there. So, very dangerous. What you can do outside of public worship is unbelievably broad. What we do in public worship is very specific. Questions or comments? I know we've I, that was a little longer than I wanted, and sorry about the music this morning, but any questions or comments, and then we'll come back to this and talk about spirit and heart preparation in two weeks. Yes, Jeff. Yeah, um, Hart and Meether, Daryl Hart and John Meether, M U E T H E R, wrote a book called With Reverence and Awe. Very helpful for basic principles on this stuff. It's a very good book. With Reverence and Awe, Hart and Meether. I think PNR published it. Anything else? Questions? All right. Let me pray for us, and then you guys can have some time to fellowship. Father in heaven, we thank you again. We thank you that you, our God, call us to worship you with reverence and with awe. We pray that you would give us grace to worship you with spirit and in truth this morning. We pray that you would humble us under your mighty hand, that you would cause us to tremble at your word, that you would make us a people that desire to please you in how we worship you. And we know that you are a God who speaks and we want to be a people that listen. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us eyes and ears to see and to hear all that you say to us this morning. We thank you and we praise you and we worship you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.